Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. The disintegration of empire. Shake ourselves awake. Hello, this is Michael Dowd, host of Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. In this conversation, recorded in September of 2019, I speak with one of my most cherished older brothers and colleagues on this path, Paul Traferka. Paul's work was one of the main inspirations for this post-doom series. His blog, Approaching the Limits to Growth, is highly, highly recommended. There are three previews. We've titled this Out the Other Side. Here's the first preview. My journey out the other side started by a real dark night of the soul. I had to go all the way in before I could begin to come out. And um, I remember about two years after I figured out equal and climate change, I was in huge, enormous despair around 2006 or so, um, to the point that I was seriously considering ending it. Here's the second preview. I started to think about the idea that what I was experiencing was classical suffering. You know, not, it wasn't pain, but it was suffering. And that, uh, you know, maybe there was something in meditation and in the, in the, uh, the Dharma that would be able to help me through that. So I, I started getting more involved in that. I never became a, an actual Buddhist. I'm always, I'm a, when it comes to spirituality, I'm a, uh, I'm a salad bar guy. I pick a bit of this and a bit of that. You know, if, it, if it's appealing, I'll, I'll put it on my plate. Here's the third preview. Reconnection in any way you can. You reconnect to nature, you reconnect to other people, you reconnect to valuable work, to meaningful uh, values, um, all this sort of, you know, whatever it is that moves you to reconnect um, is going to help you through that, which of course leads directly to Joanna Macy's work that reconnects. Yes, yes, and yes. Precisely the, uh, uh, the right prescription that you, to reconnect with life, to see yourself as part of the web of life again, and uh, a valuable part, because every part of it's valuable, and uh, you know, it doesn't matter how terrible things are, that you are still a part of that web. The conversation begins. Paul, what a delight to finally have this conversation uh, uh, with you as part of this series, because as you probably remember, I suspect, it got birth really just the day before when we first met uh, that Sunday up in Ottawa where I did that evening presentation. Connie had an email exchange with a journalist and she concluded the email with, yeah, Michael and I just recently did a, just last week did a, uh, a clergy retreat and, you know, we gave them a lot of doom, but there's only so much doom you can give clergy because so, they've got to go speak to others. And so should we, we got to a post doom place pretty quickly and, you know, Post-Doom has a gorgeous sunrise 
And that's the way she ended the email. And then, of course, the next day, spending time with you and Paul Beckwith, we sort of floated the idea of a post-Doom series and, and uh, sort of the way it's gone. First of all, I want to honor you as really one of the most significant older brothers on the path um, in this post-Doom world. Um, I first encountered your work a couple of years ago. Uh, you're approaching the limits website and just found it to be a treasure trove of vitally important writing, both in terms of our predicament and understanding our predicament. And I know you and I share a love of William Catton's book, Overshoot. Um, and then also heartful prose, helping people to take it in, process it, ultimately have some sense of serenity and acceptance and really going beyond mere acceptance to finding the gift. And I found your writings, Paul, so awesome that I was distraught when I discovered one day that your website was down. And so I let you know uh, in, an, in uh, I think it was on Facebook, um, that, you're, you know, I said, Paul, you know, you just want to let you know your, your website's down. And, um, and your response was something along the lines of, yeah, yeah, you know, I know it's, it's, it's served its purpose. And I was like, it's still serving its purpose, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so encouraged you to allow us to support you in getting this back up. And it has been, and I've had many people that told me, uh, just express their gratitude that your, your writings have continued, even though you stopped writing in any significant way in, uh, in November of 2013 on this issue, because you had pretty much said all there was to say, uh, your writings continue to be a, a deep inspiration for us. So anyway, all that's to say, it's a delight to talk with you, to count you as now one of my closest uh, friends and colleagues in this world, and, uh, and so that we actually get to engage in this conversation. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Thank you so much, Michael. Um, yeah, I remember when, uh, when I was making the decision to pull the plug on my website, I thought, um, no, no, I mean, anybody that really needs to read it has probably already read it. And uh, I did this, uh, I did my site as an explorer's notebook. So for me, it was just a, it was a very personal endeavor. Um, I didn't even run a blog because I didn't want to give people the opportunity to write me back. <laughs> and, so, you know, it was, it, was, it was a totally personal effort. And when it came time to pull the plug, it was a personal decision. I didn't think about anybody but myself until you came along and said, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I realized at that point, well, I, I'd started to realize maybe a week before that when the emails began to come in from around the world saying, um, your site's down. It, it's still down. One, <laughs> I needed this. <laughs> it's one of my resources, and so uh, you know when you came along and said, uh, "Let us bring it back up," I was a, uh, uh, I happy to subject myself to a resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fun way to language it. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Well, so and anybody listening to this or watching this, if you have not explored paulchaferka.ca. Uh, and approachingthelimits.com, both of them, the mirror sites, they both go to the same, the same thing. And yeah, it's interesting because when you wrote from 2007 or eight into 2013 or till yeah. November, 2013, it was approaching the limits. And I think I joke with you, you know, maybe now in 2019, uh, it really ought to be beyond the limits, you know? <laughs> well, it's interesting because I've been watching, of course, what's been happening in the world over the last year or so and watching the, the whole planet 
planet catch fire and watching the rise of authoritarian governments and watching the systems begin to creak and emit steam around the joints as they fall apart and uh, go back and look at some of the you know the stuff that I wrote you know seven eight years ago and it was the stuff I was talking about I missed a few points obviously everybody does but um, you know it was I remember when I was first when I first started writing trying desperately to get the message across that you know here is here is something crucial that people should know about and uh, finding very little uptake on it and then as time went on gradually there was more and more and now uh, one of the reasons I felt happy about pulling the plug on my website is that suddenly the stuff that I was talking about off in the back corner of the internet is all over mainstream media and uh, people are finally waking up and saying oh yeah and but it's it's hard I all I pretty much got left to say now is well you know it would have been nice if, if this had all started to come into awareness 40 years ago yeah yeah well my heart goes out to those people who did get it 40 years ago um uh, people like paul ehrlich who will be part of this series uh people like joanna macy uh, of course those who have died people like thomas berry and uh, william catton um I'm going to ask you here in a few minutes about uh, your experience of Catton's overshoot, but others, other, you know, those who uh, really did get it, got the big picture, tried to give the warning. Um, yeah. It not only wasn't heated, but we almost stepped, you know, stepped on the accelerator uh, more forcefully. Yeah. Now here we are where, yeah, it's, it's now mainstream media um, and it's kind of hard to avoid. And yet there's really, there's very, well, there's lots that we can do that can make a difference at certain smaller scales. Yeah. But there's nothing that we can do to, um, to keep us from experiencing the consequences of our actions over the last several centuries. Yeah. Well, Paul, I wanna, uh, I wanna start, uh, so there's a flow of questions, as you know, that I've been asking the various uh, guests that have been part of this series. And, um, but before I even go there, I wanna invite you to, for those who are not yet familiar with your work, um, uh, not only what you did from 2007 or eight until 2013, but before that and, and since then, help us get you, help anybody who's not familiar with you, help us uh, have some sense of what you bring to the world and how you got here. Okay. I started off life as, a, um, as the son of a pair of hardcore scientists, a biochemist and a physicist, and I was raised in a, uh, a typical ultra-liberal, uh, scientific, atheistic household. And um, I was taught from a very early age to believe the evidence, you know, that if I, um, uh, if I wanted to figure out how the world worked, uh, take a look at, at what the evidence was. You know, don't just go on beliefs and don't go by what other people say. Look at the numbers for myself, this kind of thing. So, one of the things that happened to me in, uh, about, I guess, about 2003, I was um, hearing about this climate change business, and I was thinking, is it real? Is it not? And I picked up a uh, book by a person that uh, many, many might be familiar with, Bjorn Lomborg, and he was a uh, very rationalist denier of climate change, right. and I, I looked at what he was saying, and it seemed to make logical sense to me at the time. And so I became what I called a summa cum laude graduate of the Bjorn Lomborg School of Don't Worry, Be Happy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, <clears throat> so I was talking with my partner at the time, 
and telling her all about how, what a crock this climate change stuff was. And she looked at me and said, well, you know, you call yourself a, a bit of a scientist. And I said, yeah. And she said, well, why don't you try looking at the evidence? And I said, huh, well, okay, I will then. <laughs> and started going out and looking up scientific papers on the net and reading them. And about two days into that, I realized exactly how wrong I'd been. And so I, I realized climate change was a real thing. So where is all this CO2 coming from? And within about a day, I discovered peak oil and I became a, a complete peak oil devotee for uh, three or four years. Yeah. There was a, a website called uh, The Oil Drum that was very popular in the peak oil crowd. <clears throat> it had a lot of very uh, competent um, petrogeologists and, uh, and uh, educated lay people contributing to it. And so I was on there and um, there was a real sense that as energy started to diminish, as we, as we hit peak oil and there was less and less energy to use, that civilization would suffer and, would, and the collapse would, would happen as a result. So my first thought was, okay, peak oil is going to collapse civilization and that's going to keep this climate change thing from getting too bad. Mm -hmm. And a lot of us were hoping that actually. Yeah, we really were. And it, it turned out not to be true. There turned out to be a, a whole ton more oil than anybody expected and coal and uh, fracking gas and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so now, you know, now here we are. So I, what I started to look at when I began to think about collapse was I realized it wasn't just energy and it wasn't just climate change that was contributing to this. You know, at that point, there were you know, 6.8 billion people or whatever on the planet, and all of us were doing stuff, and all of us were usurping the habitat of other, uh, other creatures on the planet. Uh, all of us were contributing to the waste streams that were flowing out of the environment. And I started to wonder why this was happening, you know, why. And especially when things began to look pretty serious. I remember around the time of, uh, was it... Uh, COP15, the uh, Conference of the Parties in, uh, in Copenhagen. I remember thinking that this is probably the last time we've got to really put the brakes on. And I watched that happen. I watched the United States stick a wheel in the spokes of, uh, of unprogress. And um, I realized at that point that no, we were not in fact going to slow down. We were going to keep the pedal to the metal until the bus went right off the cliff. And at that point, I started to wonder why. You know, what, what on earth is it about us as beings that keeps us from recognizing an existential crisis of this magnitude and not doing anything about it? Yeah. How could we possibly do that to ourselves? So I started to dig into things like evolutionary psychology and uh, anthropology and, uh, and sociology of various sorts. And I became rapidly convinced that there was something about us and at first i thought it was a about us as a species that made it impossible for us to do anything but what we were doing i, I had a very uh very deterministic view of it and i uh, because of my background in physics uh, i thought perhaps it was because of the way we were structured as as beings i started to look at thermodynamics and thought maybe there the answer was there i thought that for quite a while and developed uh, a, a number of theories, a number of hypotheses really about how 
our use of energy sources could have led us to this place and, uh, and basically forced us into this position. Then about two or three years ago, a lot of people kept saying, but we're not all like that. You know, there are all these indigenous people, all these aboriginal tribes out there that have lived for tens of thousands of years and they haven't despoiled their environment. They haven't, haven't uh, wiped out all the other species in their region. What makes the difference between them and Europeans? And, you know, are you sure that it's physics? Because if it's physics, it ought to apply to everybody. Yeah. And so I thought that's true, but I had no other, no other answer until a couple of years ago, I discovered the work of a, um, an anthropologist named James DeMille. He'd been looking at what happened in, around the Mediterranean and up through the Caucasus Mountains uh, about 6,000 years ago. There was an event, a, a significant climate change event that dried out and made the, the region much colder. And it, uh, it turned it, it was the last time the Sahara had significant vegetation and it all disappeared. And his theory was that the change was so dramatic that societies had to change to survive in it. And with the way they changed, ended up being in very violent, patriarchal, dominance-oriented directions. The, 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 whole, the whole region, he calls it Saharasia, which is the whole Saharan region going up through the Caucasus, through uh, East Asia and into the Gobi Desert even. And one of the things they discovered, uh, that this society discovered is that there are two ways that you can uh, acquire the means of subsistence. One is that you can make it yourself. You can grow food, you can grow, grow crops, you can grow um, housing materials. Um, but if you can't grow it because your environment no longer permits that, you can take it, take it from other people. And that was, you know, that ended up uh, looking, you end up looking at the Mongol hordes when, the, when that happens, you know, when they, and what happened there was that this cultural tradition of dominance and patriarchy um, basically went out across Europe at the point of a sword because this happened right around, right at the beginning of the Bronze Age when mm -hmm. the weapons were available and they were becoming more powerful and basically it swept across Europe once it had entrenched itself in Europe and, you know, several generations or many generations passed, it becomes the cultural tradition and that spreads out across the world. And so you end up with this tide of what is growth oriented, uh, dominant patriarchal mm -hmm. industrial culture that swept out over the, the planet. Now, this was nice because, okay, it's not physics, it's culture that does it. The problem is that it's no less deterministic. Right, that, that we ended up here because we had to, because that was the, the sort of, of uh, social creatures we were, not the sort of physical creatures we were. Well, and it, yeah, and it was also, if I can just jump in, it was also evolution at work because those cultures that were able to dominate others, those cultures that were able to use more energy and create more uh, effective tools, more effective weapons, simply outcompeted given the environmental conditions of that time outcompeted those who didn't and so we're on to sort of an evolutionary arms race at that point 
that to my mind sort of inevitably would lead to now, which is where we have reached the end point of this domination, patriarchal, and control over each other and the living world, um, because that's what outcompeted everything else. But we're now reaching the end consequences of that, which is global catastrophic collapse. And if we survive as a species, if there are pockets of humanity that survive around the planet, which I think is a pretty good chance, although we could go extinct as an entire species, no question. But if that's the case, it will only be those cultures that once again come home to, that's why I like the prodigal species as a metaphor, come home to the living world as a divine thou, a greater thou, not a lesser it, and begin once again. And because the environmental conditions in a world of scarcity and a toxic world, those cultures will outcompete other cultures, those that are able to live more harmoniously with each other and with the living world and develop tight bonds of in-group and sacrifice for the whole. Um, at least that's, that's my sense of things. Um, uh, so, anyway. I certainly hope you're right. Um, the, one of the, th- the thing that happened, I think, that was most crucial um, at that back uh, 6,000 years ago was this disconnection of man from nature. Charles Eisenstein in his book, The Ascent of Humanity, a terrific book, talks about separation and how we separated ourselves from nature and uh, any concept of us as divine in, in, a, in a real sense. And this creates a, um, a, a massive social toxicity that you know, leads where we are today. And you're right, the way back is going to consist at least partly of reconnecting to nature, to each other, uh, starting to treat the uh, the planet we're on as a living organism rather than as a box of box of resources that we just dip into and take whatever we want. So there's a you know there that's going to have to happen in order to lead us back if we get led back if we, yeah. if, we if we don't do that um, I don't think we will come back you know if we wind up with a world in which there is scarcity and heart and hardship. Um, the harshness of the uh, of the desert cultures is going to keep on going. It's going to get even worse. It could get even tighter. So, but you know, this is out in the future. We have no idea what's going to happen. And the best we can do is do the best we can right now. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Well, that's that's part of what inspired me to even begin thinking about this series is, you know, what does post-doom mean? Those of us who get doom, that is, who get that we don't live in a world of perpetual progress, we've, give, we've, we've left that religion behind, that secular religion behind, and how do we stay inspired? So I want to ask you about language, like what language, first of all, what do you think about the term post-doom, but also what language do you tend to use for yourself and with others uh, when you speak about this deteriorating or contracting uh, future. Right. I like the, 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 the framing, the language, the languaging post-doom, but it's got one problem, and that is that people think of doom in terms of an event in the world rather than a realization of a situation, a realization of the predicament, which I think is the way that, uh, that you're using it. It's certainly the way I use it. The yeah, doom, very much so. Yep. Doom consciousness. The language that I typically use uh, revolves more around um, uh, die-off, you know, uh, the great unraveling. I like that. The great extinction, 
all of that stuff is, you know, it describes, each of them describes a portion of what's happening um, quite well. And it, it, the language is strong enough that people understand that you're not just talking about um, uh, the economy collapsing, or you're not just talking about um, uh, water depletion or, you know, what, uh, or food supply problems. You're talking about a much larger interconnected, interactive, great ball of crud. <laughs> a great ball of crud. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. But and no, normally, I just I, if I'm talking about what's going on, I just I call it a predicament. Yes. I always try to steer people away from referring to it as a problem because problems have solutions, predicaments don't. I first learned about the distinction between problems and predicaments in William Catton's masterful 1980 book, Overshoot, The Ecological Basis of Revolutionary Change, which as you know, Connie and I both consider the single most important book we've ever read in our lives. And the whole first section of that book is entitled The Unfathomed Predicament of Humankind. Right. Um, so say a little bit about how that book has influenced you. Well, um, like you and Connie, um, I think it's the most important book I've read in this whole in this area, bar none. Um, it's not all that big, but he doesn't mince any words, and he uses very, very concise language. He was that was the first time I understood the phrase overshoot. You know, I always thought, you know, okay, so people talk about overpopulation, they talk about overconsumption, but that's just in relation to what people do. You know, we have children, we, we eat stuff. Um, overshoot is about us in relation to the world we live in and the idea that the world is a finite place. Um, it, I first encountered that idea with um, uh, limits to growth back yes. in 1972 or so. You know, that the idea that the world is a finite place, we can grow so far, and then we're going to start running into more and more problems. Um, Catton really brought that home, you know, he, he, uh, his uh, term for humanity being homo colossus. Yes. We are, we are just enormous now in comparison to the niche that we're trying to occupy. And he was the one, I think, who first gave me a sense, or an understanding of the scale of the problem, the scale of the predicament we face. Um, and this is one area where I feel that most people who haven't read Catton can fall short. You know, we were used to thinking in terms of uh, problems with solutions and human ingenuity being infinite, in, you know, even in relation to the physical planet, that, you know, ingenuity will, will fix it. And Catton made it very clear that the scale of the physical pro uh, problem that, we, that we're in, the scale of the, of the predicament is so large that we... The human ingenuity isn't going to get us out of it, and that that uh, we typically keep growing and growing and growing. One of the um, directions that that pointed me in was uh, in the, in uh, my system science approach to this whole thing is positive feedback loops. Mm -hmm. right? We are we're involved in a situation with a positive feedback loop, and that's what keeps pushing the curve up all the time. Yeah. Let, let me just, for anybody that's not familiar with that term, uh, positive doesn't mean good. It means self-reinforcing. Right, yeah. Negative feedback loops are stabilizing. Positive feedback loops are destabilizing and self-reinforcing. And there was a, um, uh, a philosopher that wrote a book a while back called Too Smart for Our Own Good. And what he described in there was the human problem-solving ability
as the mechanism of a positive feedback loop. You know, we, we grow until we run into a problem that stops us from growing, and then we apply our intelligence and our analytical capabilities, our problem-solving abilities to overcoming that problem so we can keep on growing. Until we run into the next problem, we solve that one, we keep on growing, we run into the next problem. And the article of faith in modern culture is that that is a, a permanent state of affairs, that we'll always be able to overcome problems. Hatton pointed out that that's not the case, that we are just as much subject to physical limits as any other critter on the planet. Yeah, yeah, amen. Well, I mean, I, uh, it's what Ronald Wright refers to in his book, uh, A Short History of Progress, as progress traps, that, yeah. we, that, that, that our, our success uh, keeps creating um, uh, problems that then morph into predicaments and can no longer be solved by human ingenuity or technology or the market. And now we are faced with uh, not just a multitude of little predicaments, but one big predicament that encompasses them all. And uh, yeah, for me, the world, the world almost divide, this is obviously a simplification, but to my mind and heart, the world kind of divides into those who have read William Catton's Overshoot and those who haven't. And if you haven't read Overshoot, please, if you're listening to this conversation or uh, watching this conversation, uh, do yourself a favor and it will be yourself and all those who know you. Uh, take the time to read Catton's Overshoot. It's, I, I would be surprised if you don't find it in the top three or four or five books that you've ever read in your life. I've recorded the audiobook with the publisher's permission. Um, and um, it's, so it's available up on my SoundCloud, Grace Limits SoundCloud, but, uh, but definitely experience Catton. Um, yeah. I had three copies of that book at once. I've got none left because I gave them all away. Oh, I've, I bought, I've, I've purchased probably 30, <laughs> uh, 30 copy, used copies on Amazon and given them away. And then we actually, I probably purchased another 30 or 40, um, again, used copies on Amazon because it's, you know, it's a, it's a textbook. So it's like $30 as a paperback, which is, you know, more than most people are willing to spend, but I find used copies and then I sell them after my programs as well. So, um, it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant book and you're right. It's, it's one of the dividing points in my consciousness. And I think everybody else that I introduced it to feels the same way. Yeah, I agree. Well, I've, I've even had dear friends, very close friends who have in the course of reading Catton's Overshoot come to come to recognize that they too were cargoists. They too were techno-optimists in an unjustifiable way. And it wasn't until reading Catton and he writes with such generosity of soul um, that you really get that. And, uh, and I've had several, like I'm, I'm talking major, like former scientists at, you know, uh, at uh, Los Alamos and, and you know uh, nuclear physicists and things like that who really got that they were that they were cargoists that they had a um, inappropriately ungroundedly techno utopian uh, view of our future and uh, anyway enough yeah. on that okay so Paul um, what have been some of the tools some of the practices some of the exercises that have allowed you or helped you stay inspired um, on a day-by-day -day basis. I mean, as you yourself have written about, on the other side of the stages of grief, yeah. beyond acceptance, there can be finding the gift. Mm -hmm. so say a little bit about some of the practices and exercises that have helped you to find the gift and continue to find the gift in these otherwise deeply sobering, challenging, at times depressing, at times infuriating uh, times. Yeah, well, my 
journey out the other side started by a real dark night of the soul. I had to go all the way in before I could begin to come out. And um, I remember about two years after I figured out peak oil and climate change, I was in huge, enormous despair around 2006 or so, um, to the point that I was seriously considering ending it. And um, I'd been brought up an atheist. I had no belief, I had no spiritual, I didn't have a spiritual bone in my body. And I remember looking in the mirror one morning and thinking about what a terrible, what terrible shape I was in. <clears throat> and a question just popped up and I don't know who asked it or, or what. But the question was, what does the word sacred mean to you? And I thought, what an odd question for me to be asking myself. <laughs> but, you know, it, it felt important, it felt big. And I thought, well, you know, it's probably worth finding out because I had this sort of sense that out in that direction, there lay something that, that I could maybe hold on to. So I started, um, I first went to a, a human development seminar and joined that group for probably a year or so. Um, I learned meditation. I learned my, my first little snippets of, of Buddhism. And the, um, that, was, that was what really, and I also got more comfortable with the concept of divinity and the sacred because I had you know, absolutely no use for the ideas before. And it, it actually frightened me to, uh, to start thinking about that because I've been taught that uh, that was the province of people with weak minds only. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that, you know, nobody, that nobody that had a grip on their own intellect could possibly be spiritual. So I started to, um, to look at that. This is why Buddhism really appealed to me. I took, I, I took hold of that very quickly because it's not a, um, a deistic religion. And uh, what I found was the, the, the Four Noble Truths, that life is suffering, that um, uh, suffering can be uh, cured, and that the way to cure it is, is the, uh, the teachings of the Buddha. And I started to think about the idea that what I was experiencing was classical suffering. You know, not, it wasn't pain, but it was suffering. And that, uh, you know, maybe there was something in meditation and in the, in the, uh, the Dharma that would be able to help me through that. So I, I started getting more involved in that. I never became a, an actual Buddhist. I'm always, I'm a, when it comes to spirituality, I'm a, uh, I'm a salad bar guy. I pick a bit of this and a bit of that. You know, if, it, if it's appealing, I'll, I'll put it on my plate. So I, um, I found that what happened when I, I, when I meditated and I started to work on reducing my suffering, that it actually, it actually worked. I, start, I stopped blaming the world, people, um, human nature so much. I came to terms with the fact that we are who we are, and that's perfectly okay. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yes, it looks horrible to, uh, to a lot of people, and we're doing terrible things to the planet and other species and each other. And yet, when you take a step back and you look at it from, the, uh, from that Buddhist perspective, it's all unfolding exactly the way it should. It's, you know, it, it, reality could be nothing other than it is right now. 
that, that's certainly, uh, whether that's ontologically uh, the case in some fundamental ultimate capital T sense, who knows, but it's certainly one of the most useful beliefs that I have. Yeah, it's same here because it, it smoothed everything out. I finally was able to, uh, to breathe again and I was able to, to take joy in some aspects of my, my personal life. Um, one of the things I discovered about myself is that I have a strong reaction against act activism. I remember reading Paul Kinsnor's Confessions of a Re uh, Recovering Environmentalist yeah. and seeing myself in that article. And he, the way he describes himself there is, uh, it's Taoist almost. You know, it's let, let go of the tiller and let life take you where it wants to. Um, it's, a, it's a quietist as opposed to an activist perspective. And that resonated very much with me. I'm not the sort of person that goes out, and, that wants to go out and tell people what they should or shouldn't do in their lives. I'm more interested in finding out, you know, why are you doing that? You know, not that it's right or wrong, but, you know, what, uh, what are your beliefs? What are your, what are your driving forces? These kinds of things. And so I adopted Taoism. I dabbled a bit with Advaita Vedanta for a while, the concept of no self, Romano Maharshi's um, uh, philosophies. But ultimately, ultimately, I think I come back to, um, I come back to the Four Noble Truths. I come back to Buddhism and the idea that everything is as it should be, that you can engage in it or not, as is your nature. And so I, I maintain a, uh, uh, I maintain a, a meditation practice. It's not as strong as it should be, but it's there. Uh, one of the other things that, and this is a very recent tool for me, I just picked up a book by an author named Johan Harry, and it's mm -hmm. called Lost Connections. It's about depression. Yeah, I've read it. Yeah, and uh, it's about the notion that uh, depression isn't necessarily just a chemical imbalance in the brain, that sometimes it's a completely reasonable response to terrible events in your life. And one of the things that struck me in there was the, uh, the convergence of depression and grief, that they have essentially the same set of symptoms. Uh, and I remember that when I was, um, when I was going through my, my uncovering of the predicament, there was an enormous amount of grief associated with that. And it caused me to pull back and disconnect from a lot of, you know, from people, um, friendships began to fall away. I, uh, I began to disconnect from my work, things like this. And I still feel some of that because my wife died two years ago and uh, there was a very painful process. Um, and so that, of course, reinforced this, the, the, the grief aspect of it. Hari's prescription for coping with that, and I think it's, it applies to rocking the predicament as well as, as devastating person, uh, events in your personal life, is reconnection in any way you can. You reconnect to nature, you reconnect to other people, you reconnect to valuable work, to meaningful uh, values. Um, all this sort of, you know, whatever it is that moves you to reconnect um, is going to help you through that, which of course leads directly to Joanna Macy's work that reconnects. Yes, yes, and yes. Precisely the, uh, uh, the right prescription that you, to reconnect with life, to see yourself as part of the web of life again, and uh, a valuable part, because every part of it's valuable and, uh, you know, and doesn't matter how terrible things are, you are still a part of that web. Um, so this feeling that uh, 
that you're reconnected, feeling that I'm reconnected, I think is drawing me back toward it, you know, reconnecting with, uh, with other people, finding a new relationship after my wife died, feeling connected on a, on a heart level, especially. Um, I've spent most of my life living in my, in my head as an intellectual. And um, one of the things I discovered is that I can tell myself all kinds of stories about what's going on, who I am, but in order, and those stories almost always disconnect me from the world around me. And I find that when I listen to my heart, it draws me toward the world, toward life, toward nature, toward, uh, um, toward deep values, as opposed to just, you know, what, how expensive is my stereo, yeah. which is, you know, a place I got trapped for a while. Um, so, you know, reconnection, I think, is, is probably is going to be, for me, it looks like it's going to be the primary tool of recovery from this feeling of this terrible feeling of desolation that I went through when I realized that, uh, you know, the future wasn't going to be anything like I imagined it. Yeah, yeah, amen. Well, that was really well said, and I'm so aligned with you on that. And uh, I, for one, am grateful that one of the things that you at least seem to be reconnecting with is uh, is your writing, um, and uh, because you have a gift for the written word and for expressing your heart in the written word, and um, uh, it's it's exciting to begin seeing the tentative uh, uh, first steps of of uh, moving beyond where you where you consider your writing to be about convincing others or persuading others uh, mm -hmm. to sort of a different heart, a different mind, a different uh, intention. Um, to express sort of what is a post-doom heart, what right. is a post-doom mind, and what are post-doom actions. One of the things I suspect is that uh, writing on, on those topics is going to be a lot more like poetry than it's going to be like a scientific paper. Yeah, I completely agree, and I, I hope so, uh, yeah. And I look forward to co-creating with you in that field because you're a much better writer than I am, and yet we share, uh, to my mind, we share a common heart around all this stuff. Sensibility. Yeah. So um, this is great. So Paul, uh, anything you would like to share about how, I mean, Joanna Macy famously has said that, you know, there's, this is a direct quote, there is science now to construct the story of the journey that we've made on this earth, the story that connects us with all beings. Right now we need to remember that story to harvest it and taste it for we are in a hard time and it's the knowledge of the bigger story that's going to carry us through. So I'm curious, how has this larger story, the epic of evolution, uh, supported or inspired you? Or is it not something you think a whole lot about? No, I think about it a, a whole heck of a lot, actually. <clears throat> when I was going through my, my heavy writing period from about 2007 to, to 2012 or so, I was very involved with all of the all the interconnections that uh, that we had made that human beings had made with each other with the things we were doing with the planet, but especially about uh, with evolutionary psychology, and uh, as well as evolutionary biology. One of the things that I realized is that um, we are very very much a product of our evolution. Uh, we're a product of the the places that we have evolved. You know, the African savanna. We're uh, Europe. Uh, North America, all these places where we've we've lived that have shaped who we are as a as a species, 
and <clears throat> the connections that we have to the planet as a result of the places that we've uh, that we've we've grown, the places we've experienced. Um, one of the things that I I'm not sure about anymore is whether I can lay off an awful lot of our negative um, characteristics and our uh, negative human qualities at the feet of something like evolutionary psychology, because evolution is just a uh, it's a tool that allows a creature to adapt optimally to whatever conditions it finds itself in. Let me jump in real quick on this because I, I, as you know, I think I find your work and Nate Hagen's, uh, Nate Hagen's teaches a course at University of uh, Minnesota called Reality 101. And he's got some of these uh, Nexus One. If you put Nate Hagen's Nexus 101 videos, you'll see he's got a number of short videos that really capture um, our predicament in our times. And he's one of the few people, you and Nate Hagen's, other than me and Connie, I mean, Connie and I for many years did programs on evolutionary psychology and brain science. We have a whole course that we created that's still available up online for free. Uh, if you just go to our main website, thegreatstory.org, thegreatstory.org, and just click on evolutionize your life or Google evolutionize your life. But few people in my experience bring together a deep understanding of energy and peak oil and climate um, uh, and overshoot uh, resource extraction, um, uh, soil depletion, acidification, all the cascading uh, predicaments um, that relate to our relationship to primary reality and evolutionary psychology and brain science, a deep understanding of human nature. And I find that you and Nate Hagen's, uh, more than anybody else that Connie and I are aware of, um, have that awareness, have, have read that stuff, uh, expose yourself to that and bring and integrate that. There's too much to be an expert in everything. You know, you were just talking about this whole cascade of interlocking predicaments that we've created. And if you're going to really talk about the whole thing, you've got to be an anthropologist, and a sociologist, and a geologist, and a biologist. And this is, I think, why most people don't have a... Uh, a sort of global understanding of what's going on because it, it just frankly takes too much work. I had to neglect my job for three years to get here. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I agree with you and uh, you know, I too am a generalist, Connie and I both, but I'm especially a generalist much more so than Connie, yeah. meaning I have made it my business uh, and my calling, my passion, my ministry over the course of decades now studying the big picture, studying the history of everyone and everything, the epic of evolution or big history or green history um, or the universe story, but also in terms of the last seven years, uh, really getting all of the various aspects of our predicament. And uh, I wouldn't be able to do it, frankly, if I didn't have 30 or 40 hours a week that I can devote to studying all this stuff because people generously offer their second homes or vacation homes to me and Connie so that we can live there for free. We don't pay rent. We don't have a mortgage. And we speak in then churches and colleges within a two or three hour radius of wherever we happen to be staying. But I have a lot of free time that allows me to um, be an independent scholar and learn this stuff. And then of course, my, 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 goal, my passion, my heart is to simplify it enough to be able to communicate it to folk that they can get the big picture without having to spend oodles and oodles of hours and mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's, uh, that's it. When I was working, 
full time and trying to do this and also maintain some kind of a personal life. Um, I ended up burning out because it takes so much effort, so much attention to do this. But, um, you know, it, it, I, I ended up, I really felt that it was one of the most important pieces of understanding that I could give myself about what, about the world, you know, as opposed to simply becoming just the, the, the world's greatest expert in, uh, uh, in lasers or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. Well, this is great. Paul, last couple of questions relating to impermanence and death. The first one is how has you, you've touched on this a little bit, but how has a sacred understanding of the necessity of impermanence and death, the, the, uh, uh, the, the naturalness of impermanence and death. How has that nourished you? Well, it's, I think it's fundamental to, uh, uh, to my, to my soul. Um, the second one of the, um, uh, the four noble truths is about impermanence. Life is suffering and uh, the cause of suffering is impermanence. Um, and it's something that I, that was one of the first things I recognized when I started getting in, engaged with Buddhism. Um, the fact that everything ends. I, I had an intellectual understanding of that before, you know, the, uh, um, my family had a very clear-eyed understanding that um, death was essential to life. You know, that you didn't get evolution without death. You didn't get, uh, you know, without death, the world just, you know, instantly is overcrowded and, and everything collapses. So death's essential, but it's not a, um, it's not a heartfelt, a heartful understanding of uh, what's going on. Um, impermanence, being able to accept it, um, that really didn't come home to me, I think, until my wife died. She uh, had uh, ovarian cancer and opted for a medically assisted death. Say a little bit about that, because you've written about it, and I read it, and it was just such a, a, such a beautiful way of expressing that. So say just a little bit about sure. supported her in that process. Yeah, well, um, she and I had been, uh, we'd known, we met first 45 years ago. And we'd fallen out of con. We'd been good friends for a decade, fallen out of contact for 30 years, and then reconnected. And she came to Ottawa to uh, to live with me, and we spent seven years together. It was a very strong relationship. She was also a uh, uh, an artist, a fractal artist, digital artist. She did mind-bogglingly beautiful work, and she was totally dedicated to it. So for the seven years we were together, she um, uh, she. She worked. She worked at her art, and I brought home the uh, brought home the food and cooked it and served it to her. And she basically worked 16 hours a day in front of her computer for seven years. Left a uh, left a library of 3,000 finished pieces of art behind her. Just un unbelievable. Where does where does somebody access that? How can somebody experience? It's that? on Facebook. Uh, if you go to her uh, her page is still up. She, uh, she called herself Visionary Light. Go to Facebook, you look up Visionary Light, and all of her work is there. I remember coming home one night after work, and she's sitting at her computer like usual, and she turned around, she smiled at me. She said, sit down, I have something important to talk to you about. Okay, I said, and uh, so she said, it's, it's what we thought, it's ovarian cancer. And I said, okay, well, why are you smiling? And she said, well, it's my get out of jail free card. I get to go home. <laughs> and, <laughs> and she was, she was 
really pretty thrilled about it. And so she worked for another month or so on her art. And I remember her setting down her, uh, uh, her mouse and her tablet at one point. She pushed away from the, the desk and she turned around and she said, that's it, I'm finished. I've done it all. I've done everything I want to do. So she was able to finish that up. She was able to say fulsome goodbyes to all of her friends. And um, we arranged a, uh, uh, we, we got arrangements made with the hospital so that they would send over a, uh, uh, an anesthesiologist to do the procedure. Um, we arranged for a final meal for her that, uh, from a, a local restaurant. And she, uh, she had one last dinner. Uh, sautéed scallops and, uh, and creme brulee and a glass of Patron tequila to wash it down. And then the, um, um, then the process happened. It was very quiet, very calm. It was graceful and dignified. It was one of the, if there can be such a thing as a, as a good death, that was one of the best I could imagine. Yeah. She, you know, the doctor was very compassionate. Um, the nurse was, uh, was attentive and stayed in the background. And, you know, we made sure that she was absolutely sure that she wanted to go through with it. And there was no question. You could hear it in her voice. And yeah. so I was sitting there with her and our last words were, I love you. Yeah. She just closed her eyes and, and went away. Yeah. And so this, that event really informed my understanding of death, what death is about, what endings are about. Um, you know, it's still impossible to know if a piece of our consciousness survives and goes on to other experiences. She was strongly convinced that it, uh, that it did, which I think gave her some, some comfort. Um, I'm not sure, I, I allow for the possibility, just as I allow for the possibility that, boom, light switch gets turned off, everything stops. Um, but it lost a lot of its, its terror for me. You know, death is no longer a, a terrible thing. It's something that happens in the course of life. And uh, for me, this makes, uh, it's kind of paradoxical. It means that I'm okay with impermanence. I'm okay with, with even with endings. But the question is, am I maybe too okay with endings? You know, if, if things were to get really rough, uh, would I be able to say, uh, well, where's my get out of jail free card? Oh, there it is. You know, she left a, a huge mark from that point of view on my, on my life. I'm just curious, sort of in winding this down, any you would like to say around remaining opportunities? Like what is your take on what's beyond our control and where we still can make a difference, uh, potentially individually and collectively? In other words, what's your sense of what's no longer possible, but what still is possible? Yeah. The way I think about it now is that um, What's no longer possible is to go back to 1958, right? We can't wind the clock back to a, some kind of a, uh, a golden era of human, uh, human existence here. Uh, we are trapped in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the place we've created for ourselves, but we always have been, mm -hmm. right? There's, it's never been possible to be any place other than where we are at the moment. So. I don't think in terms anymore of saving the world of, um, you know, even 
too much in terms of reducing suffering. What I think in terms of is maximizing my own value to the world, maximizing the deep conscious pleasure that I take from the world uh, and that I can bring to it. Um, so for me, it's, it, it's become a very personal thing. It's no longer a, a huge collective salvation. It's not even a, a personal salvation. It's simply being the best person that I can be right now and like a pebble thrown into a pond. The ripples that, uh, that are created may be small, but you never know where they're going to end up. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's beautiful. Ultimately, I think that as long as we are trying to do good things for other people, that uh, that's the best we can do. And, and other species, I'd add. Yep, other people, other species, the world. The world, you know, do do the right, do what you feel is right for the world, and all will be right for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, amen. And I'm just, I just want to reiterate that Connie and I count you as now one of our most cherished uh, brothers, colleagues, friends in this movement. It's been a delight to have this conversation with you. I'm deeply honored, Michael. Thank you very much for inviting me, and I'm very glad I met you. Yeah, me too. Thank you for listening. For the videos of all 75 of my post-doom conversations, as well as other post-doom resources, visit postdoom.com.